Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. All right, well, we've hit critical mass, so let, let's begin. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Uh, good morning to those of you who are joining us in Asia, especially Maggie, who's with us from Taipei, and good evening to those of you in the East Coast of the United States, especially Shelley. Um, you know, over the last few months, we've been talking at the committee more and more about Taiwan. Um, and it's becoming a more important, uh, well, it's always been important, but it's actually increasing importance in the dialogue between the US and Taiwan, the US and China. So we think that we needed to do a program and we needed to find two of the greatest experts that exist uh, who are Americans on this subject. So we settled on, on, on Maggie and Shelley. We didn't know when we picked this date that we'd have a major arms sale from the United States to, China, uh, to Taiwan. We did not know that the Chinese government would announce that they're sanctioning the companies who are participating in this. But we did know that Taiwan was gonna be a increasingly important part of the discussion in this election season of US-China relations. So that's a kickoff. Let me just get two sentences on both are old, close friends of mine. You know, Maggie Lewis is professor of law at Seton Hall University. As I said, she's joining us from Taipei, where she's spending this academic year as a visiting scholar at the Judges Academy. You're gonna to have to tell me what that is. And a visiting professor at Academic, academic Seneca. Um, her last program with us was only a few months ago when she discussed the US Justice Department's China Initiative. Shelley Rigger, I feel we've turned to her all the time when we have Taiwan questions, is the Brown Professor of East Asian Politics at Davidson College, author of several books in Taiwan. And last year, she was a Fulbright scholar, senior scholar based in Taipei, where she worked on a study of Taiwan's contribution to the PRC's economic takeoff and a study of Taiwanese youth. And I hope we can talk about that also in the course of this conversation. Um, two of the great experts that exist in the United States, even when they're in Taiwan. So <laughs> let, let's start off with Maggie, who's going to, of course, she's 8,000 miles away, talk about the view in the United States of the role Taiwan is playing today. Well, thanks, Steve, and, and thanks to Margot and Bernice and Erica and the, and the whole team. It's always it's always great to be able to, to do these programs with you. And, and yes, and I, I feel like I have the, the flowers to prove that I'm in Taiwan because there's no way I could keep these alive if I was in the United States. Uh, but I am going to speak a little bit about the external um, view, which, which may seem counterintuitive because I'm in here, uh, but that's in part because I'm hot off the presses and, and quite literally printed at 7-Eleven because anyone who's been to Taiwan knows you do everything at 7-Eleven. Um, I was just on the task force for uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, towards a stronger U.S.-Taiwan relationship uh, task force chaired by Bonnie Glazer, Mike Green, and Richard Bush, uh, and it's available on the, their website, and I highly recommend it, uh, not just because I, I worked on it, but I, I do want to make clear I'm not presenting the report today. Everything I say is, is my opinion, 
Uh, but I think it's very timely that we got the report out to look at many facets of the US-Taiwan relationship, everything from defense and security to the economic relationship to how the US can support Taiwan in its quest to get some international space, um, at least not have it keep contracting. Uh, and I realized in preparing for this webinar that <clears throat> it was actually December of 2016 when I was at a public intellectual program refresher, a PIP refresher in DC, that it had just been the phone call, right? When, when Tsai and Trump had the phone call. And in fact, uh, some representatives from Tecro came and I think their heads were still spinning a bit. And we now know that it was not a call that was uh, vetted and considered in sort of the normal way something of that significance would be vetted and considered. But in hindsight, we also know that this is very indicative of what we've seen with the Trump administration since that time. That the I, normal- I should interrupt, by the way, just, just in saying that the, the, the public intellectuals program is a program of the national committee where we find the young, great China scholars throughout the United States and we make them public intellectuals. And Maggie is cohort which cohort were you? Two, so an early cohort. And of course, I should add that Shelley was a long-term board member of the National Committee. So both have long and close connections to the committee. Go ahead, sorry. Yes, no, and, and, and thank you. I, I do have, I, I love all PIPs, but my cohort is particularly near and dear to me. So, you know, so I think at that time, it was it was quite shocking that this phone call had occurred. And, and, and now we're seeing that, you know, in that several years that the Trump administration has been very supportive of, of Taiwan. And Shelley will speak a little about what that means domestically in Taiwan. Uh, we've seen high level visits, Secretary Azar, uh, Under Secretary of State Crash came to Li Donghui's funeral. Uh, of course, the arms sales, not just the most recent, but we've seen a series of arms sales. Uh, we've seen you know, rhetoric that's very much about that we have a strong US-Taiwan relationship. It's getting stronger. Uh, and, and so the, the relationship, although it is still, of course, unofficial, but it is a robust unofficial relationship and, and on a trajectory to uh, inch even closer to uh, looking even more formal. And, and the, even the physical presence here, the, uh, which uh, the AIT, you know, the US uh, presence in Taiwan, that building, the complex was finished uh, before Trump or it was on its way to being finished. But I think even having uh, a physical presence in Taiwan that looks that much more like a new, big, uh, impressive embassy is just one more way that we see that relationship being stronger. Uh, now, you know, I think though, even if, if it is Trump, for another four years, that it's hard to say what we've seen to date with Trump is what we'll see going forward with Trump. Because if there's anything we've learned, it's that he is uh, transactional and mercurial, and I'm being kind there in nature, and that uh, I don't think there is a set policy that would necessarily continue for a second term. And also given the churn that we've seen in his advisors over his first term, who knows, you know, we had Bolton for a while, Pottinger has been throughout, but who knows who's going to be advising him on Taiwan if there was a second term. So I'm hesitant to say what we see today with Trump's view towards Taiwan is necessarily going to continue. Uh, with Biden, uh, we haven't had a set game plan, sort of these are his 
four points or five points on Taiwan. He did congratulate uh, President Tsai on her reelection and not all of the um, contenders at that point, this is before he was the nominee did. And even just last week, there was an op-ed that he published in the Lianhe Xinwen Wang, which I guess is the word world journal in, in Taiwan in both Chinese and then there was um, the English in which he did make a point of saying that, um, that there was going to be a, you know, a deepening of ties with Taiwan. He used that language. So we have at least gotten a clear statement that he's recognized Taiwan is important in the relationship. Um, and of course, too, his team of China advisors talk a lot about like the free and open Indo-Pacific and things that would um, necessitate, you know, or at least be very important to keep Taiwan as part of this first island chain out of Beijing's hands. So I think we would continue to see a strong relationship under Biden, but how exactly that would play out is unclear. Regardless if it's Trump or Biden, I do think we're at a point where there is this questioning of whether strategic ambiguity should be adjusted and move towards strategic clarity. Uh, I am of the view that that should be thought about very carefully because in part, it's not as simple, actually I have Harry Potter books behind me as like waving a magic wand and saying strategic clarity, everything is solved. Strategic clarity has risks. And um, we don't know how Beijing would respond and not everything should be done with that in mind. But um, for example, the point has been made that if it's so clear the US would step in, then um, does that take away some of the pressure on Taiwan to provide for its own defense and to do the changes it needs to do domestically? And also um, a declaration is nice, but what really matters is will the US back up any declaration it makes? Is it credible? And so we need to have the US showing its support not just saying it's support for Taiwan. A couple other points, I know time is short. Uh, I think it's, of course, it's not just about the president. We've seen a lot of action in Congress. For example, we just saw uh, bipartisan Senators Merkley and Rubio introducing the Taiwan Relations Reinforcement Act, adding an R in there. Uh, we have a lot of support in Congress. Uh, personally, I would love to see it not just be sort of the traditional supporters, the Rubios, Cruz, Yohos, but some of the younger generation in Congress. I want the AOCs, I want the Bookers. Um, and I think one thing that needs to be thought about is how to diversify support beyond some of the more traditional friends of Taiwan. Uh, I think work needs to be done to educate Americans about the importance of Taiwan, not just strategically the positioning in the Indo-Pacific, but what is TSMC, the largest company that most Americans have never heard of? How important semiconductors are, not just economically, but as a matter of national security going forward. And also just the, the democracy and values. And, and I, I know that the US is not gonna come to the aid of Taiwan just because of democracy. I would love that to be the case. But I, I think there's a great story of Taiwan that could be told even more. So they just had, a, for example, photos from the mass military wedding uh, ceremony that will be taking place in Taiwan. And they have their first same-sex couples. And it's all over Twitter, this, this uh, lesbian couple. And I dare people to see this photo and not smile because they just look so joyful. And one is wearing her military uniform. And there's a really great story about Taiwan and democracy and values. And we're seeing Taiwan up its game with that sort of soft power. We've got uh, Bi Kim Shao now as the representative in DC, who I think is a fantastic choice to bridge uh, some make some bridges with new people who haven't paid attention to Taiwan before. 
encourage people to look at Kolis uh, Yotaka. She's the uh, executive UN presidential spokesperson who's got um, quite a good Twitter game, a little bit of sass. And, um, and so we're seeing a very different, I think, sort of messaging. Uh, and just finally, um, on the China side, I wish I knew what Xi Jinping was thinking, right? Um, and um, you know, what are the chances of an invasion? I am not a military person. Uh, I would recommend uh, Philip Saunders, who was on the task force. He raced recently, uh, gave a uh, was on a panel for the Hoover Institute, and he goes through the various options that uh, the PLA would have: invasions, airstrikes, blockades, uh, and, and does a good job of breaking down that each of those options, even combined, has risks. Uh, and so if Xi Jinping wanted to act uh, soon, um, that would come with you know, some significant risks. So I think the chances of some sort of military intervention are higher a little bit further down the road as the PLA becomes even stronger. Uh, that said, um, you know, the more unstable the US, the more is that there are opportunities uh, perhaps for Beijing. And, uh, and you know, we can't uh, forget that Deng brought back Hong Kong and, and that there is a personal legacy too of Xi Jinping. And uh, I wish I knew how much that was playing into his thinking, but I'm aware it is there. Uh, last but not least, it was just a uh, double 10 day here a few weeks ago, which is the national day. And uh, I would point out that it was the first time I've seen it framed at least by some of the techos in the US and the Taiwan's government's presence more as the birthday of Taiwan. Um, there was one tweet that was like the 109th birthday of Taiwan, which I found really interesting because when the Wuchang uprising happened in Wuhan in 1911, it had nothing to do with Taiwan. It was overthrowing the Qing dynasty. But um, it's really interesting to see how Taiwan is more and more in the forefront and the Republic of China and that framing of the ROC Taiwan is becoming ROC and smaller um, font, quite literally on the passport and the Taiwan in bigger font. So even though there's not a formal declaration of independence under the name of Taiwan, we are seeing Taiwan very much in the forefront and the more traditional Republic of China framing receding into the background even more. So with that, I, um, I'll pass it over to Shelley. All right. What's left? Not much. Um, but uh, let me say a little bit, since we the division of labor that Maggie and I worked out was that since she was in Taiwan and I was in the US, I would talk about what's going on in Taiwan and she would talk about what's going on in the US and China a bit more. But indeed, um, you've already covered and very well a lot of the developments in Taiwan. Um, and I would also recommend to everyone the Brookings CSIS report, which is really excellent. And the uh, policy guidance that they're offering makes a lot of sense to me. So I hope that it will get some traction and people will read it. I was not on the task force, so I am a um, neutral recommender here. I have no, no particular interest in it other than that I think uh, something of such good quality should, should get some circulation. You know, if the US election was happening tomorrow and it was happening in Taiwan, I am pretty confident that uh, Donald Trump would win by a landslide, right? The man is really popular in Taiwan, especially with ordinary people, with the general public, and especially with people who are on what we would call the green end of the political spectrum, that is to say, the more uh, Taiwan identified, so the people who lean away from that ROC framing and more lean into the Taiwan framing of their own identity and the status of the place that they live, 
Uh, people who are more inclined to vote for the DPP, President Tsai's party, and to support bolder moves against uh, Beijing. These folks are really very enamored of Donald Trump. And it's been interesting to, to watch how the US election has been portrayed in different parts of Taiwan's media. So the what we would call the green media uh, has gone very heavy on the whole Hunter Biden, New York Post, uh, what so-called expose, right? Um, and the blue media has been much more restrained in reporting on a lot of the uh, more controversial aspects of the Trump campaign. And so it might be worth taking a moment to think about why that is and what the implications of the, the fact that we are now on the cusp of finally actually having this election. It's not happening tomorrow and it's not happening in Taiwan, but it's happening pretty soon. And then it will be over with mostly. So it may take us a while to find out exactly what happened, but at least we are not in this mode of waiting uh, for too much longer. So why are so many people in Taiwan so enamored of Donald Trump? It starts with the phone call that Maggie mentioned, which took place in December of 2016. So after the election, but before Trump's inauguration in which Trump was brought by some of his advisors to an interesting choice, a choice that previous US presidents elect had not made, which was to establish some rapport with the Taiwanese president before actually taking office and going behind the kind of veil of separation that the US has maintained between its highest level officials and Taiwan's high level officials since 1979. And I think there were probably uh, a lot of good reasons for doing this. But the problem was that the, uh, the phone call itself was publicized immediately. Actually, uh, uh, it was on the, the daily list of things that Trump had done that day, along with all the other phone calls that he made, as if it were not something particularly interesting, almost as if the staff had not really recognized that it would be controversial. And when the US media, immediately picked up on it and began to ask questions. And almost uh, within hours, Trump was kind of retreating from the phone call. He, he said, uh, she called me. So he threw the responsibility or blame, however you want to see it, for the phone call back onto President Tsai. And then he tweeted again and, and kind of connected Taiwan to other issues in US-China relations. So from the very beginning, even before Trump was actually president, we could already see this odd sort of pattern of, on the one hand, reaching out to Taiwan and trying to bolster the relationship between the US and Taiwan. And on the other hand, trying to kind of pacify Beijing and placate the, uh, those who called into question either the wisdom from the US point of view uh, or the uh, correctness in terms of US-China relation as people in Beijing did, you know, he's, he's kind of trying to play both sides. And that has been the pattern ever since, right? 
On the one hand, uh, Trump has tried again and again and again to get something going with the PRC on the economic front. As recently as February, he was still uh, cultivating good relations with Xi Jinping, complimenting uh, Xi, Xi Jinping on the response to the coronavirus epidemic in China and so on. Um, so that the kind of full out anti-China uh, extravaganza that we have seen in the, in the Trump administration in the last few months is actually relatively new. This has not been the pattern throughout. The pattern up to now has been a kind of vacillation between seeking better relations with China in the hope of getting some kind of an economic deal and um, trying to appear tough on China. Well, in Taiwan, only one, when, when the pendulum swings to the more um, pro or more conciliatory side, it sort of swings out of the picture and nobody in Taiwan sees it. And then when it swings to the, uh, we don't like China, you know, we're, we're gonna um, deepen our relations with Taiwan, that's front and center. So a lot of folks in Taiwan have really become pretty convinced that uh, Donald Trump's presidency is a window of opportunity for Taiwan to advance its status in the world and to potentially even kind of bust a move and go for broke, to just use two cliches in a row, um, and see if it is possible to actually change the status quo in terms of Taiwan's status in a really serious way. And so I think what we have seen in US-Taiwan relations over the last four years is uh, President Tsai working very hard to simultaneously appear and to genuinely be grateful for all of the substantive progress that has really been made in US-Taiwan relations. And at the same time to avoid being pulled into uh, aspects of US-China relations that don't really have any upside for Taiwan, but that uh, are perceived by some in the US and some in Taiwan as an opportunity somehow for Taiwan. So this has been a very sensitive balancing act for President Tsai from the beginning. And while there are lots of people, I got the meanest email of my life the other day from a woman saying, how dare I suggest that people in Taiwan should not support Donald Trump 110%. You know, it was like, ah, I got a troll, I must be famous. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people in Taiwan who just feel like if Trump is not reelected, the window of opportunity will close forever. And they are putting enormous pressure on to keep that window open or to get Tsai Ing-wen to jump through it. So we are in a pretty, uh, a pretty perilous moment. I think the PRC perceives the peril in the moment. It sees the possibility of a surprise either from Taiwan or from the US or both. And it has all of its spines fully erect to deter anybody from thinking that the window is actually really open. So I think the next few months, the next couple of months are dicey, but beyond that, it will really depend largely on the outcome of the US election, whether we kind of continue on this uh, rocky road or move towards something that 
while it may not be as exciting for Taiwan, may be a little bit more um, predictable and um, level. So I'm going to, uh, I know I've gone over my time. Sorry, I'm looking forward to the questions. The uh, both great foundation uh, for the discussion. Shelley, substantive progress. Talk about the substantive progress in U.S.-Taiwan relations over the last three and a half years. Yeah, you know, there have been a lot of really obvious things like arms sales and- uh, But we've um, had arms sales for decades. Right, but we've had arms sales for decades. And I've, I remember going into the State Department, you know, for my little courtesy visit when I'm up in D.C. and uh, during the Obama administration and being having a conversation about who could we send to Taiwan that would be high enough level that it would look like a meaningful visit, but not so high that it would cause the PRC to punish Taiwan for the visit. You know, the idea of, of visits has been on the table for a long time, although the uh, I would call I would call that symbolic, not not yes. substantive. Right, exactly, exactly. You, and so that is that is substantive. What well, substantive where, progress? Where, right, that's symbolic. Where the substantive progress is is on things like real military cooperation, um, a lot of coordination at a very, uh, you know, it's not obvious. Nobody's talking about it too much, but uh, both both the U.S. and Taiwan. I think are have recognized the necessity to coordinate on military planning um, to an extent that has been difficult in the past. So I keep noticing, you know, Tsai Ing-wen wears an army helmet or a camo helmet. I don't know what service branch it's from, more than any Taiwanese leader since Chiang Kai-shek. You know, the woman is out at military bases once a week. Why is she doing that? Because she's trying to send the message to her nation. You guys, we have a military problem and we have to be ready to take it on. We have to be ready to sacrifice for the things that we value. And I think that that is very much part of US-Taiwan relations where the US is saying, you know, we, we wanna help, we are committed, but we, we can't help yeah. you if you don't help but us. So the substantive prog progress you think is in closer military coordination? So, to, so closer military coordination. Also though the, um, the level of kind of diplomatic cooperation and the visibility of AIT. Maggie mentioned the building, but also the personnel in AIT are mm -hmm. out about, they're on social media, they're out in the society. Those, but um, those are, okay. So but then the other, the other big thing is economic. And here's where um, the substance is coming from one side, but not, not so much from the other yet, right? So throughout the Trump administration, one of the major critiques from people like Richard Bush has been, you know, you talk a good game about taking care of Taiwan or, um, you know, elevating our relationship, but what Taiwan really needs is something to uh, break down its economic isolation and marginalization. And where is the U.S. on that? What about some kind of bilateral economic agreement between the U.S. and Taiwan? And the answer has always been, as it was in the Ma administration as well, well, you know, we have this beef and pork 
problem. The Taiwanese don't want to import U.S. beef and pork because the U.S. doesn't want to stop using this um, agricultural chemical and Taiwan won't set a standard for the minimal amount of the agricultural chemical and blah, blah, blah. This went on for a really long time and it seemed quite intractable. And then in August, Tsai Ing-wen said, we will set a standard. We will, we will import U.S. beef and pork. We will not continue to fight this particular battle. So the next, the obvious next step was for the US to step up and say, well, that's excellent because now we can begin to talk about an, a bilateral economic agreement of some kind and that has really not happened. So again, you know, this is what I'm talking about. This administration seems hot to trot on some dimensions but then on the thing that I think most of us believe um, Taiwan needs the most, which is economic, sort of consolidating its economic position, um, even after the logjam was dynamited, we're still not talking. And I would add on the bilateral trade agreement or, or whatever it would be, because it, it would require some finessing to figure out how you do that with um, a, a place that we don't have a formal diplomatic relations. Um, but it was, a, it was a lot of political capital for President Tsai to say that about beef and pork. That is a big issue here. That's a big deal, beef, big issue. And, and my understanding too is that a lot of this has to do on the US side with USTR and Lighthizer, who just has not been interested in Taiwan. Congress has written letters saying, get on this USTR. And, um, and it strikes me that part of it is just particularly within USTR and, and how you know, they're just not interested in pushing this forward. And so this is, this is really important. Taiwan is the US's 10th, 11th largest trading partner, depending on the year and how you, how you calculate it. One thing too, also on the substance, I, my, my sense is that AIT has been much more robust in using the GCTF, the Global Cooperation Training Framework, which was in place before Trump and a way to have um, meetings on everything from sort of, uh, you know, issues about intellectual property to like women's empowerment. And, and they're using this sort of training framework for meetings and, and using it in a, in a, I think in a more robust way and talking more about using it in a multilateral way. So one thing too, I find interesting and that might be, you know, important distinction between Trump versus Biden is, you know, Trump has done an excellent job of alienating all sorts of US traditional allies. Whereas um, my hope and sense is that Biden is much more interested in rebuilding those multilateral ties, uh, which I think is really good for uh, Taiwan because of course Taiwan's and its security is important to what for Japan, for other countries in the region. And we are seeing too some really interesting movement on Taiwan, India, relations, which wasn't really in play before. So the more that I think we could have the US serving as the node to connect Taiwan into a more of a multilateral web of support, instead of just saying it's all about Beijing, DC, Taipei, that would be good for Taiwan. Do you think these visits that we've seen, you know, Azar's was the most senior uh, cabinet official who's visited Taiwan since we established diplomatic relations with China. And then we had uh, Kralik, who was the highest State Department official. Are these good for the people of Taiwan? Do you suggest to the State Department that they should be doing this? I'll let Shelley start because she has had more conversations about who to send. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought, yes, they are good for the people of Taiwan in the sense that they are very um, comforting and reassuring 
right? And when the, when the level of the visitor is higher, people in Taiwan understand that, they're aware, they may even overemphasize it a little bit. Uh, so yes, they, they bolster the morale of people whose morale is important if the US is going to have some kind of security commitment, right? So it's really important that Taiwanese not give up on themselves if the US is not ready to give up on them. So uh, they are morale boosters. And the PRC's response was not, uh, you know, the thing that you always worry about is that some kind that the Taiwan will get punished for an action that the US takes and that the punishment will not be worth the benefit that they derive. But I would say in, in those cases, um, you know, the, the PRC is kind of, it's, it's turning the screw a little bit more every day on Taiwan, and it doesn't seem to matter that much what the U.S. is doing. You know, the, the screw turning is uh, a kind of, it seems to be a little bit more on autopilot and a little bit less an automatic response to something the U.S. is doing. Um, on the other hand, you know, like, it's just weird. The U.S. is in the middle of the biggest domestic policy failure since the Civil War, and we send the guy who's in charge of that to Taiwan, you know, it, it's just- A little, a, little strange, yes. yes. I don't always understand the, the, the coordination. And, you know, that's too- But let, let me ask Maggie, do you- USTR, right? You know, it's the State Department and the Pentagon seem really pro-Taiwan. USTR could not care less. Where's the coordination? Maggie, so, would, I mean, cause you, you talked about international space. Doesn't it strike you that these visits make it impossible for the mainland to revert back to the Mind Joe Fay period when, when they allowed Taiwan more international space. Aren't these related in your minds? And, and part of it is there's you know it's kind of it's hard to do a, a regression analysis and hold certain factors in constant because you know yes Ma and, and Xi Jinping met but I would say the Ma you know the, the Xi Jinping of 2015 is is different than the Xi Jinping also of 2020 and sort of how his power consolidation and and how repressive uh, PRC is today and so there's a lot of different factors in play here so I don't know if it's a direct causal relationship, but I, it was interesting to be here for the Azar visit because, you know, first of all, uh, people I know were like, wait a minute, he's not quarantining for the 15 nights, which is what it's supposed to be. And then there was kind of the, you know, is he going to take back some Taiwan masks to wear? And, and there was the, the one, I mean, so the super spreader now we know event at the White House where I think, you know, Azar was one of the few times we'd seen someone in, you know, that high up in, in Trump administration wearing a mask publicly when others weren't. Um, and so there were, it was, it was interesting to see more what will he take from Taiwan you know will he show up with a sense of humility uh, and because I can say living here it is phenomenal how the Tsai administration and the people of Taiwan have responded to COVID and Shelly and I last saw each other it was actually it was the night of the election in January which is hard to believe it's the same year because it does feel so long ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? But, um, and that was right when the first rumblings of COVID were coming. And because Taiwan had had the experience with SARS, they had a lot of ventilators, they had a lot of PPE ready, and they also 
also had distrust both for Beijing and the WHO. So they reacted, they, they made their own determination about how they were going to shut down, clamp down. There were, you know, we're at this point, uh, the documented cases are still in the 500s total. They don't do a lot of testing, so that might be higher. But the reality is they only have seven deaths attributed to COVID, a population of 24 million people, and um, a couple imported cases each day. They seem to be more or less getting caught. At least we're not seeing the hospital showing up with COVID cases. So I think too, it was just so interesting to see the US come to Taiwan um, with this, we, we, we haven't, you know, we're a mess and, and, and you are not, which was such a role reversal. Um, but uh, but it, it, it definitely um, has been, you know, how much, you know, Beijing's response. I, I also get a little annoyed, you know, there's that whole trope about in a move likely to raise the ire or to or move likely to anger Beijing. And of course, how Beijing will respond is part of the calculation of anything the US does with Taiwan policy. But there sometimes is this sense of inevitability of, of well, you know, will Beijing find it necessary to respond? It's never necessary to invade Taiwan. That is a choice and that agency needs to be put on Beijing. So even with the recent arms sales and then the um, sanctions that were announced again, so we get this Raytheon, Lockheed Martin and Boeing, uh, Reuters, and I, I'm, I don't mean to pick on Reuters because other others do this too, but the direct quote was, Beijing considers Taiwan a wayward province it has vowed to bring under control by force if necessary. So first of all, it's never necessary. That's a choice that Beijing would make. And we've gone from renegade province now to wayward province, which did make some good Kansas jokes for, you know, carry on my wayward son. But I do think we need to be really thoughtful. And this is not just the reporters. A lot of times it's editors about using phrases like reunification. Taiwan was never part of the PRC. It would be unification, but it would not be reunification. So I think too that um, just trying to be really thoughtful about how we frame what is going on between the cross straits, and that it doesn't take on this historical inevitability that Taiwan will be returned someday, because that's not a historical inevitability. The you know the, you say don't run a regression analysis. I think that's correct, but you need to understand. What, the, what has basically been the cause of the deterioration in cross-strait relations. So what I wrestle with, and you're right that, that, that we've seen a tightening across the board on the mainland, you know, whether it's in the economic sector, the human rights sector, the strategic sector, we've seen a tightening. There are those who argue that their policy on Taiwan, however, Xi Jinping's policy on Taiwan has been remarkably consistent and we have not seen a tightening and that the cause of the deterioration could be the US putting their thumb in the eyes of the mainland and Tsai Ing-wen's actions. So I think you need to to formulate a good US policy, you need to answer those questions. And you, we can't, I mean, we wanna look ahead and project, but we need to look backwards and understand. Shelley, you wanna talk about that a little? Yeah, I think the reason people would argue or observe that uh, China's policy has become more, more stringent or more uh, assertive toward Taiwan mainly has to do with the, first of all, the Taiwan's international space. So, you know, no more World Health Assembly and all that kind of stuff, but also the military pressure that's brought to bear on Taiwan. So there are, um, there are Chinese uh, military aircraft 
in the Taiwan Strait now constantly. They cross the center line, which they never used to do. They, uh, there are uh, ships on the- Was that related to, did that increase during the Azor visit? No, it, it's, it's increased over the time that Tsai has been president. So I think it's really, you know, I'm, I'm definitely with you that the U.S. needs to be careful and thoughtful and that it's, it's not enough to just say we can do whatever we feel like because uh, China's wrong. If what, what you do puts your friend in danger, then you shouldn't do it just because you, know, you think you can get away with it because you're not the one who's gonna be hurt. However, I think it is also true that, uh, that the PRC leadership decided that Tsai Ing-wen was someone they could not work with. And so they shut her out for four years and she kept an absolutely steady policy. She did not, give them any justification to move against her. Uh, and I think they really thought that they might be done with her um, in this election last year because it looked like the KMT was making a comeback after the local elections in 2018 when Han Guoyu led the KMT to this major victory um, in a number of municipal elections, which are, and Taiwan's municipalities are large. They're like states in the US. So when she was reelected, then, you know, the PRC, I think, understandably, must have concluded our policy is not working. You know, we're, Taiwan is not moving in the right direction. And now we got to live with this, this woman for another four years. And we've got, you know, Trump in the, in the U.S. who is blowing hot and cold on both the Taiwan issue and the, the PRC issue. So how can we stabilize this situation? So I don't know, I don't know any more than Maggie does what goes on inside Xi Jinping's head, but I can come up with kind of two explanations for the um, escalated military activity in the Taiwan Strait by the PRC. One possible explanation is that they are getting ready for action. The other explanation, and I kind of like this one a little better, maybe just because it's not what everybody else says, but is that they are intensely worried that uh, something is gonna happen that's gonna force their hand. And I agree with you, Maggie, that it's not really forcing their hand, right? They will choose whether or not to act, but they have painted themselves into a corner where certain things, they, they have led the world to expect that if certain things happen, they will have a reaction and it will be a strong reaction and it will probably be a military reaction. So they need to deter that because this is not a good time. It is not a good time to be um, blown. What, what are some of the, those actions that would be a red line? So would a secretary of state visit to Taiwan create um, a crisis? Would a I, destroyer I visit to Kaohsiung create a crisis? I don't know that the U.S. is capable of actually um, prompting the, in, the invasion scenario, but it is certainly capable, you know, there are things the U.S. could do, like a Secretary of State visit, that would be extremely inflammatory. I, I don't mean, I think an invasion is so unlikely we can take it off the yeah. table. The uh, consequences but, for, for China are so severe that the whole system risks imploding. But right, there are which is many why, steps, that's why I call it a crisis, yeah. you know, that it could provoke a, a real crisis. 
um, yeah. which could take a lot of different forms. Um, so I think that's a more kind of realistic way to think about what would be coming down the road. So what if a destroyer visits Kaohsiung or an aircraft carrier visits Kaohsiung? What do you so, think happens? Well, so two points on this. I, I want to be very clear that just getting stronger in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is not necessarily better. It's not like spinal tap. This one goes up to 11. Let's just keep making it louder, right? I think this is a situation where there needs to be careful calibration and strategic ambiguity should be discussed, right? That has been that phrase, that construct has been there for a long time and it's always been a little ambiguous what we even meant by that. So I think it's good that we're seeing debates in foreign affairs magazine and amongst different think tanks about what should be done. That that needs to, to happen, that, I, that there we are at a juncture where there is some rethinking that should occur. One thing I'm worried about is I was recently listening to a great podcast series out of Georgetown. It's like the US-China Dialogue podcast, but they're talking to people who are former government officials. And they spoke with, um, and one of the uh, episodes is with Admiral or Ambassador Preer about the EP3 incident in 2001. And he's a naval aviator. It was interesting that he was the one who was in Beijing when we had this collision between a US and a PLA jet. Um, and of course, the, 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 the fighter pilot, um, he died and, um, and our crew was taken in and, and it was a diplomatic crisis, right? And, and two things. So one thing he, advice, piece of advice he got was when the Chinese uh, officials would uh, come out with very strong rhetoric to begin with, you had to find a way to help them to get down that ladder to get them to go from that point, kind of like right now, as Shelly was saying, there's a lot of activity in the street. How do you get so you can walk down that ladder, give them a way down the ladder? And the other thing was that at that point, they were able to find some nodes, some ways to communicate. And I, and I worry that if something did go bump in the night over around in the street, that right now, are there people on both sides in DC and Beijing who could communicate effectively, um, that could actually have it so you know, the crew would be safely returned and there would be some kind of apology and that moment would pass. So I'm not as worried about Xi Jinping actually saying, let's invade tomorrow. I'm more worried about an inadvertent ship gets hit, a plane gets hit, and then we don't have the mechanisms in place to stop escalation. Shelley, you want it sounds like Maggie thinks strategic ambiguity has outlived its usefulness? Is that no, a fair? I'm not saying I'm thinking it should be thought about because also I don't think necessarily everyone who says strategic ambiguity, it's kind of like saying status quo is completely talking about the same thing. Yeah, and you I, know, even the, in I the one people China are, policy. In the policy world, people are pretty clear on 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 what the ambiguity is about. Um, Shelley, do you have a view of that? Yeah, I think if you're gonna change strategic ambiguity, you better do it in a way that is 100% credible because it's a thing that you can do only once, you know? <laughs> you can only say that one time. And honestly, if it comes out in a tweet, you've, you've thrown away an incredibly valuable and powerful rhetorical and declaratory policy tool and it has zero credibility. Yeah. You know, it, it, I just, the idea that, that this administration would would walk away from strategic ambiguity when I don't think the PRC has any, any conviction that Trump's word is worth much and that the deliberation underlying such a decision would be 
entirely untransparent. So did this happen as the result of a process within the government or is this just another thing that he's tweeting? Like no one would ever, no one would know. And so I, you know, I think if the next administration wants to alter this policy, they can, they should think it through the way Maggie is recommending. But right now it would have no credibility and it would be um, throwing away a bargaining chip that might have real value in the future, but has no value today. Yeah. yeah, and I just to be clear, I'm not saying throw out the window, like even look at Stillwell's speech this summer and when the cables were released that hadn't previously been released about like the six assurances. It's saying we're not getting rid of it, but within the bounds of strategic ambiguity, we can have an even stronger relationship between the US and Taiwan. We have not hit the bounds of what can be done within an unofficial relationship. So even discussing, you know, where, how cozy can it be? Um, and you have things now, which I, I was a little worried, like when uh, Representative Xiao changed her Twitter profile to ambassador Xiao. And she's like, well, I'm the de facto ambassador. They call me that. That, that, that would got my kind of like, wait a minute here. This, is, this, is this a smart move to start using ambassador even in social media, which is of course not official. So I'm, I'm hesitant, but it's out there. You look at like Quincy Institute has very different views than some other think tanks. And we need to find fora to have debates about what is U.S. policy. Yeah, towards that's, what, that's what this, that's what we're doing tonight. I, I mean, I, I guess I've been living, working, and studying in Taiwan now for 48 years. And 48 years ago, when I went there, it was a totally different place than what it is today. And I would say US policy towards Taiwan is one of the great policies we've ever had, that we've allowed a place which was an authoritarian, rather poor place when I was a student there, to something which is a bustling, vibrant democracy. And the idea that we should be, when we have foreign policies that are disastrous, we have foreign policies that have killed people. We have foreign policies that, that take the poor people of the world and send them deeper into, into poverty. And we have one that's actually worked. And what the think tank world is talking about today and what the administration is talking about today, taking this policy, which has created an amazing, help create an amazing place and we're going to tear it down we're going to talk about tearing it down i i i know where i am on that one um and it's it's certainly not to change a policy that has fostered an amazingly successful place um and to change it and take the risks that that entails and i would ask shelly are the people in taiwan and their is there data that supports the support of that 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 supports Trump? Are these polling that shows that this is the case, or is this yeah. more anecdotal? Um, he's a, he is more popular among the uh, people than among elites, um, but yeah. But there's polling. Right. They're yeah, they're they they're of course yeah. <laughs> Are they aware of what happened with the Kurds? Um, well, you know, part of the problem, as I said before, you know, when the pendulum's over here, everybody sees it, and when it swings over there, it's off the screen. Uh, Taiwan's media can be really parochial and insular, and so international news is often very Taiwan-focused. It's um, there's got to be a, a a joke about this, but you know the. It's that like that old headline joke: if the if New York City was um, 
blown up in a nuclear war, the headline in the Boston Globe would be Hub Man killed in blast because there was one guy from Boston in, in uh, Times Square who got blown up. Uh, and, and that's what the Taiwan media is like. So no, I don't think most people have any idea. You know, they don't even have any idea uh, oftentimes what else the Trump administration has said and done about China. They focus on those actions and words that directly address Taiwan itself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 what is the single greatest protector of Taiwan? What do you think is the single greatest protector of Taiwan? I think right now, um, the single greatest protector of Taiwan is the realization in Beijing that um, there is no easy way to solve this problem. And that China has other problems that are in a, in a real sense, not in a sort of ideological or um, ideational way, but in a like, put your pants and shoes on everyday kind of way, infinitely more serious and important to the survival of the Chinese Communist Party system than the Taiwan issue. Like Taiwan is boxed in. It's not going anywhere. They're not, they can't declare independence. They, the, the, you know, uh, B. Kim can put ambassador on her business card, but, you know, nobody's going to recognize Taiwan. And, and actually the fact that it's starting to look like maybe Taiwan is getting a little bit more love from the international community may alter that a little bit, but compared to the uh, deep, social and economic tasks of management that the PRC has, um, Taiwan is, is, it can't be number one on the list. And I also think the crisis in Hong Kong has been illustrative of just how difficult it is to get people to do what you want, right? Hong Kong, the, the leadership in Hong Kong was on board with Beijing's long-term plan for Hong Kong. The, Business class in Hong Kong was on board with a minimal number of exceptions with Beijing's long-term plan. The law enforcement apparatus in Hong Kong was after a couple of months of being hung out to dry by the Hong Kong government and forced into an impossible confrontation with their own people, they were on board. So, and still it was incredibly difficult to bring Hong Kong to heel and it is not over yet. And I'm looking at 2024. The, the government is, a, is not on board. The armed forces are not on board. The business community is on board and 24 million people are not on board. So it's just a way harder task. You know, the little tip of the iceberg in Hong Kong. So I'm interested in, in what's going to happen in 2024 here, because as Shelley said, I mean, Tsai Ing-wen is as steady as they come. I always say if I was somewhere and someone had to cut the wire in a bomb and hit the red one, it blows up green, it doesn't, I wouldn't mind having Tsai there. She is just like this. So 2024, what's going to happen? Who comes after her? Because I worry more that it's going to be someone who's deeper green. And if we go more towards the Chen Shui-bian, that would be destabilizing. Um, I wonder about the future of the KMT, which has that sort of old school, Mai Joe is still out there, pretty front and center. But then we have a younger group of sort of, will there be a KMT 2.0, will they be able to redefine? And, and I, you know, I, I don't have a horse in this race. I am not Taiwanese, but I do think it's important that there is a real, at least two party system. There's smaller parties, but they aren't 
they aren't big enough to make a big difference here. It's still very much the blues and the greens because you need that ballast. You need that counterweight to the greens. And if in 2024, it's going deeper green than Tsai, I think that could be very destabilizing across the street. You know, that's 2024 is a long way away, but I'm looking to see like, what about someone like Ho Yo Yi, the mayor of New Taipei City, who is KMT, but not your traditional KMT. He's got a really interesting background as a law enforcement, as a police officer, he's hugely popular. Um, you know, so what's coming up there? Um, but I think, you know, for now, I'll so the other thing is the, the Taiwanese identity, which, you know, there's all these polls and one of the most reliable polls because it's been going on for you know, decades now is asking people in Taiwan, do you consider yourself Taiwanese, Chinese, both? And, and we've seen the numbers of pure Taiwanese and dropping any sense of being Chinese. Um, that's the Taiwanese numbers are going up and up and up, which of course also makes it so that, you know, on one hand, Xi Jinping might say, well, want to intervene before they go even higher, but it also raises the stakes for exactly what Shelley was saying, that people, the more they feel like they're Taiwanese, the more they might be really likely to resist in a, in a, in a very serious way. But that's when we need people who are more the behavior psychologists about how do people react when they face raids or when they face a blockade. And, and that's a lot of conjecture. What are the risks to Taiwan from very bad US-China relations? It's not good. Um, anytime Taiwan, you know, this is Taiwan going to be a pawn? Um, and I, exactly. I do worry about Trump is transactional. And was it the Bolton book where he says, you know, Taiwan's the tip of my pen and China's the desk. And I, I don't know, but I, I, my sense is um, I worry when people and the US sometimes are pro-Taiwan because they're anti-China. And when we see this rhetoric of communist China or Pompeo's speech this summer of communist China and the threat to the free world, and we get that kind of framing um, that it's, well, this is Taiwan is free China. It's, it, it feels very kind of retro to me and not in a good way. So as soon as Taiwan becomes sort of this foil, I, I think it takes away Taiwan's identity as a, as a, as a place that deserves to be yeah. treated legitimately and not just as in between these two superpowers. And, and that was my, that's my primary worry, that it's really about China, it's not about Taiwan, and Taiwan, exactly what you said, Maggie, could be used as a pawn, which would be disastrous for the people of Taiwan. I, I need to, I should get to audience questions or I will get huge criticism from our audience. Uh, first is from Professor Tom Gold. Um, he's asking two questions. All right, Tom, I'll give you two. Have the National Committee, CSIS, Brookings, et cetera, had any pushback from Beijing about Taiwan programs? I can only answer for us. The answer is no. Um, do, do you know of any pressure on these programs, either Maggie or, or Shelley? Not, I don't know about the think tanks. I, I just kind of step in that world occasionally. Acad in the academic world, you know, there's a really, um, the, the world of Taiwan studies is small, but it's a, it's a lovely world. But one of the big questions is, do you as someone who's kind of Taiwan studies, uh, attach yourself to the, the China program in whatever academic institution you are, um, which has more resources, but then Taiwan becomes part of China studies, which is problematic for all the reasons we've been saying. So I think um, there's a, a resource issue for getting Taiwan having a focus. Uh, I also think there's a generational issue. I'm 45. I went to Beijing in 1995 to study language. If I was even five years older, the chances I would have studied in Taiwan would have been much higher. Uh, I think there was a real 
a generational gap where there was uh, a lack of people going and spending time in Taiwan. And even if they didn't focus on it, it was part of their experience. So one thing now we're seeing a lot of people doing Fulbrights in Taiwan, uh, which is great. Um, there's a one of the acts pending is the Taiwan Fellowship Act, uh, which I've, I've been advising on to try to get mid-level uh, officials from the U.S. government and from Taiwan government to exchange for a couple of years. It's along the lines of the Mansfield program that was used for Japan. Um, but uh, I just think we, part of it is resource issues, too, for lack of Taiwan programming. Shelley, anything you want did to? You, did you do your language studies in Taiwan, Shelley? Or in the I did my language studies in the U.S. And oh, wow. I struggled ever since to learn <laughs> Chinese in mainly in Taiwan, yeah. uh, just, you know, on the street. Yeah, I I did mine in Taiwan. Um, and then Tom asks, have any chances of playing, this I guess refers to Brookings, CSIS, us, uh, playing mediating roles, track two dialogues vanished? Oh, I don't think they vanished at all. I, there's I quite a lot of track two dialogue going on now. I've been on a couple of really interesting calls where it's clear, you know, people say this isn't, this doesn't exist, but it absolutely exists. There are people in China who desperately want to get beyond this period of uh, deep rupture between the US and China. They know there's no, there's nothing good for any of us if we cannot uh, talk to each other at all. Um, and whether it's what Maggie was saying before, you know, you gotta have somebody to negotiate the plane crash or much simpler things like the idea that um, we're not going to be able to visit one another, that we're not going to be able to work in one another's institutions, that um, the U.S. government is trying to shut out uh, students and scholars and researchers from China. This is terrible. And there are plenty of people in the PRC who feel the same way. And we are talking to them. Then, Tom's second question is thoughts on Taiwan's place in, in the Hong Kong situation. The Hong Kong uh, issue is really interesting. Um, last year when I was doing my research in, in Taiwan, one of the things I was doing was focus groups with young people. And I specifically asked my uh, research assistants not to mention Hong Kong, just to see what would happen. And it came up in every single focus group because young people in Taiwan feel very close to the Hong Kong protesters and they are horrified by what's going on there. And I think a big part of the reason that we see sentiment toward the mainland moving in a negative direction in Taiwan is that um, Taiwanese used to think, you know, Hong Kong, it, it has nothing to do with us. They're on their own trajectory. Um, but in the last two years, Taiwanese have decided that they care about Hong Kong and that they, they don't, they, they can't bear what is going on there. And it's somewhat controversial how many Hong Kong people should be admitted to Taiwan and under what circumstances, but there is a lot of goodwill toward Hong Kong people. And that, uh, the flip side of that is ill will toward Beijing for what has been happening in Hong Kong. And we see a lot of solidarity protests, not just with Hong Kong, but also with uh, the Thai protesters now. There's been gatherings, and, you know, so it's, 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 it's not just about Hong Kong. Certainly President Tsai used Hong Kong very effectively um, in her reelection. And I think it was a valid point to make, but it also did 
uh, serve her well to say, hey, I'm not just saying that, you know, China's getting more repressive, look, look what's happening here. But I also wanna be careful about drawing too many uh, connections between Hong Kong and Taiwan because Hong Kong is part of the PRC. Uh, it is, you know, and that's, that is a, an important distinction to make. Uh, and, and so sometimes I too see like Taiwan comma Hong Kong and put together in sort of how Beijing is treating places. And, and, and I think we do need to separate those because uh, they have very different uh, positions vis-a-vis -vis Beijing. Terry Louts asks, what about the cross-strait economic relationship? How vulnerable is Taiwan to pressure on trade and investments with the mainland? Is there any evidence that the PRC might use sanctions or an economic embargo of some force, sort to force concessions from Taiwan? You know, the, um, the economic tools are really hard to use for many reasons, but maybe the most uh, interesting one is that the people who would be hurt the most are the people who are already the most likely to advocate for better relations across the strait. So if you sanction Taiwanese businesses that are working in the mainland, then you've basically just, you know, stabbed your best friends in Taiwan in the back. So um, using the economic tools is difficult. Last year, or two years, yeah, a year ago and a, and a little bit more, uh, Beijing had a brainstorm for using economic leverage against Taiwan, which was to cut off tourist visits. First, it was the group tourists, and then it was the individual tourists, and then the, uh, they rolled back the number of students. And that was painful for some of the folks in Taiwan who had built businesses around Chinese tourists but it did not actually decrease the absolute number of tourists entering Taiwan. People were coming, um, and, and partly because the Taiwanese government was subsidizing tourism from Southeast Asia. But then the next thing that happened was COVID and everybody in Taiwan said, oh my gosh, I'm so glad they cut off the tour groups because we would not have been able to keep out COVID if we had had tourists coming from mainland China for Chinese New Year in 2020. So, you know, the economic levers are hard to use. We are also seeing a lot of diversification of production and supply chains by Taiwanese companies. There's, they're still very embedded in the mainland and there's still a huge amount of Taiwanese investment and Taiwanese companies doing business in the mainland. But there, there are an increasing number of Taiwanese companies that are either moving out or when they, when they expand their facilities, they expand into other locations. And that also has much less to do with uh, cross-strait relations than it has to do with the US-China trade war and the need to get made in China off your product. And, uh, but it also has to do with the fact that after almost 30 years of giving Taiwanese businesses all kinds of incentives to go into China, the PRC is now trying to uh, indigenize its own economy and replace foreign investors and, and imported components with domestic content. So the Taiwanese companies don't get the cushy deals that they used to get and they can sometimes find a better um, opportunity someplace else. So there's this kind of convergence of factors that seem to be 
by no means eliminating the economic element, but reducing the uh, acceleration, at least, of the economic piece. And, and the U.S. can also play into this or is playing into this with respect, for example, semiconductors and saying, TSMC, we don't want you selling to Huawei or whoever. And, and so there's um, definitely a component there when it becomes to more strategic industries. Um, and I think that, that'll be an interesting space to watch. Good policy to restrict TSMC exports to the mainland? Uh, I just <laughs> well, think, you know, this is another example of where if you want to help another country, what do you do? You kneecap the company that is like over 20% of the stock exchange, you know, the, the index. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like, yeah. I think it's about 30% of the market cap is TSMC. And I mean, one kind of humoristic was a friend was saying, well, if the missiles start flying, the safest place to be is next to a TSMC foundry. Um, that's not gonna get bombed. Uh, but uh, you know, that I, I think you know, what is good US policy is thinking about you know, TSMC is, is supposed to build a plant in Arizona. Um, I, I do think that uh, you know, a lot of my work right now too is on how uh, the US is shooting itself in the foot by chasing away some of the best and brightest minds because they have PRC passports or, you know, and, and I, I really think the US needs to think very thoughtfully about how to make it so we have an innovation economy at home. Um, and that's not just by saying, you know, don't sell here. It's about making it so the US has stronger um, innovation on its, on its own territory. Is this sanction on Lockheed, Raytheon, and Boeing's defense um, business, ha have we seen that before? Or is this the first time that it's actually been implemented? This Chinese, Chinese sanction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know? I don't know. No, not recently, that's for sure. I don't know way back when in the day. I think it's a, um, I, I was aware of it being talked about. It's the first time that I've seen, of course, we don't know what it means. It's just said we've sanctioned them. You know, it's this unreliable entities list. We're gonna similarly, there's talk of this unreliable entities list without specification as to who's on it and what that means. Is it gonna be like our entity list? Of course, our, of course creation, getting on our entity list is a incredibly arbitrary and capricious uh, action where there is no transparency on that either. Um, and we don't know how much symbol and how much substance. Like when PRC said we're not giving a um, a visa to Marco Rubio, it's like, oh well, I don't think he was going anyway. So you know, I don't. I think we're going to need some time to see how much bite there is behind this. Try and look. obviously we have an election as we've been talking about in in seven days, to, but let's look out far over the horizon. Let's try and look out ten years from now you know, thinking about where Taiwan is going, thinking about where the mainland is going. Because obviously, obviously the US effect is huge, but that's, those are the two places that are gonna determine the future of cross-strait relations. Try and take us out that, that 10 years. And what is, it, what, is it gonna, what is it likely going to look like? An unfair last question. Okay, so I will say that, so this task force, I was on the, the best we could tell the, the time before this task force where there was a similar body was in 1995 hosted by CFR. And we read that report, which was a nice time capsule, right? So I think one thing that I think is so important is that we need more people asking that question because, you know, when I say, you know, strategic ambiguity, 
sure, it makes sense to always have smart people thinking about this has served us very well till today. And let's make the case that it continues to serve us well. But to do that, we need to get people really looking at these issues from a broad range of backgrounds. You need the security people talking to the people who care about civil and political rights and law, talking to the people who understand the economic side and trade. Um, and so part of this is I think we're at a position where we need to look out. Of course, I have, I'm deeply invested in Taiwan. I have lots of friends here. My kids are right, literally right now in school here, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and so I also hope we get more people to people ties because I think that's important for the longer term relationship that it shouldn't just be done at the sort of high level think tank and policy uh, level. Um, but if, if we could have a durable status quo for another decade, that strikes me as a win. But I don't know what you think, Shelley. Shelley? Yeah, I think we keep, you know, 10 years ago, we were asking ourselves, will we have a durable status quo for another 10? And 10 years before that, we were asking ourselves, you know, how long can this it's coming up to years and it's actually we're past years and it's still going. So uh, in some ways, I, I, I always doubt myself because it seems to me that people in Taiwan who have less, uh, who have more confidence in long term have up to now. One thing that troubles me um, is that. Shelly, we, we, somehow your internet connection, it, it seems to have. Oh, am I breaking up? You are. I think you told us, you know, what we needed to know too, right? As you were breaking up. Yeah. That's right. It okay. was either the US government, the Taiwan authorities or the mainland authorities didn't want you to be heard in your final comments. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just um, Taiwanese youth are more negative about China than they have been previously. And it's because they know what it's like in China right now under a more uh, repressive Xi Jinping regime. And unlike young people just a few years ago, they, they, they don't see it as a, as a welcoming or interesting place. And that I think poses risks for the next 10 years. I was looking for an optimistic note to end on, uh, <laughs> that the youth is not favorably disposed towards, towards, towards the mainland and the mainland youth less favorably disposed towards Taiwan. We're seeing decreasing interchange uh, which is not not a good thing. Uh, my hope on the tourism had always been that mainland tourists would go and see what a, an open society and democracy looks like, and would actually affect the way that they they think about their own their own life. Uh, just as I've always hoped that you know the hundreds of thousands of Chinese students who come to the United States go back to China and they bring with them the experience that they've had in the United States and that affects the way they think about uh, the way the Chinese government and the way the Chinese Communist Party should run. And I still believe, even though that's being restricted currently, I still believe that ultimately that will make US-China relations better, more constructive. And the, to me, the greatest support for a vibrant Taiwan is constructive US-China relations, that if our relationship with the mainland government is strong, that provides enormous amounts of protection for Taiwan. And to the extent it deteriorates and it becomes a pawn in a deteriorating US-China relationship, there is enormous risk for the people on Taiwan. And, and that's what, you know, that's deeply worrying to me. 
Can Me I give too. you some optimism though? That I, I you know, there- Well, the, the optimism the, is I think that the people, you know, the hundreds of thousands of, of you know, what you said, Maggie, that we get the people to people exchanges serve as the ballast for a more constructive US-China relationship and a more constructive US-Taiwan relationship. And ultimately that serves as a foundation for constructive relations between the United States and China, between the United States and Taiwan and cross-strait relations. That ultimately, you know, I don't believe the mainland has a timetable. I don't believe there is anyone, any serious person on the mainland who, who talks about an invasion of Taiwan that you literally, it, it, it's just not on their, uh, it, it's not in their planning. But I think other things which provoke uh, the mainland government, they, they, they continue to tighten, um, they take you to squeeze Taiwan, whether it's economically, diplomatically, not allowing Taiwan to participate in international organizations. But we lived through the era when Taiwan was allowed to be in the WHA, when Taiwan diplomats, when they saw mainland diplomats, they were able to actually exchange words. Now that's actually all prevented. The question is that prevented because of a mainland tightening of the policy without any reason, or is it happening because Taiwan is changing its policy? That's why it's so important to understand kind of the historical uh, basis for the worsening relationship so that we can try and come up with policies that fix it. And Taiwan has an amazing group of young people who are politically active and they're building, as I said, these international connections. It's Pride Parade this weekend and we can have here a big parade with people out together safely and celebrating these rights and, and where they've gone. So again, I just, I, I think also there's so much optimism for how Taiwan society has changed. And, um, and, and really that's a hard, as you know, such a hard one battle and, and, and transitional justice is ongoing. A lot of people still very much feel the wounds of the martial law era, uh, but uh, it's, it, it is vibrant. It's an overused adjective for Taiwan, but it is vibrant. Maggie, Shelley, thank you so much. This has been a absolute, we've run over and I see we've run over, but nobody has signed off. So obviously we could go on till midnight and people are till noon, Maggie's time and people would still, would still be part of this discussion, but it has been interesting, enlightening, educational on a subject that often generates lots of heat and not much light. You have both generated a lot of light. You're great friends of the committee and we deeply appreciate your doing this with us. But thank you so much for joining us this morning and this evening. Thanks, Steve. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.